In 2020, a United States military officer, let's call him David, was out for a drive. His two-year-old son accompanied him. While we don't have too many details about his exact location, we know David was overseas, stationed in a country with a significant Russian presence. The car pulled to a stop at an intersection. David looked at his son through the rearview mirror. Everything was calm. That's when it happened. David's head felt like it was going to explode. As if on cue, his son started wailing in the back seat. Was he also feeling the pain? As he tried to keep from vomiting, David may have recalled the rumors about secret weapons targeting U.S. personnel in foreign countries. They allegedly emitted strange noises and triggered headaches. There was one piece of advice for anyone who experienced symptoms. Get out. So David hit the gas and sped away from the intersection. As soon as he cleared it, the pressure in his head vanished. His son stopped crying, and everything seemed to go back to normal. Except for David's mind. In the past few years, claims of so-called Havana syndrome had spread from Cuba around the world. But no one could explain what was happening or how to stop it. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Havana Syndrome, a mysterious ailment that emerged in 2016. The first affected victims were U.S. intelligence officers and diplomats stationed in the newly reopened U.S. Embassy in Cuba. But since then, cases have spread across the globe. Today, we'll examine some of the first reported incidents, as well as how they contributed to a decline in U.S.-Cuban relations. Next time, we'll consider three conspiracy theories surrounding what, or who, is responsible for Havana Syndrome, including whether or not the entire outbreak was simply a result of mass psychogenic illness. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had 
might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In late 1958, Cuba was in the midst of upheaval. President Fulgencio Batista had ruled the island since 1952 when he deposed the previous president and canceled the country's elections. Batista ruled with an iron fist. He jailed his political opponents, embezzled government funds, and implemented nighttime raids to keep the people of Cuba obedient. But all that seemed set to change on January 1st, 1959. That day, Fidel Castro and his guerrilla fighters successfully ousted Batista. Tired of all the bloodshed, the people of Cuba mostly welcomed the regime change, but they didn't know what they had in store. A fervent Marxist, Castro quickly converted Cuba into a communist state. He also seized foreign-owned assets for the government and hiked taxes on U.S. imports. To retaliate, the United States cut off diplomatic ties and even supported a group of Cuban exiles in an attempted coup in 1961. But it proved unsuccessful. So instead, the U.S. imposed a full embargo on Cuban imports. Meanwhile, Castro remained in power, fully aware of America's efforts. The year after the embargo, matters grew worse. In the midst of the Cold War, Cuba let the Soviet Union build a nuclear military base on their island. This placed the U.S. within range of enemy nuclear missiles. On October 22, 1962, the U.S. retaliated by implementing a naval quarantine against Cuba. President John F. Kennedy declared that the U.S. would not allow any offensive weapons to be imported to the island, 
and demanded that all existing missiles be dismantled and returned to the USSR. The quarantine led to a dramatic standoff. For 13 days, the country stood on the brink of a nuclear war. Fortunately, the U.S. and Soviet Union reached a de-escalation agreement and both superpowers backed down. But even though nuclear war was evaded, the U.S. didn't forget Cuba's role in the standoff. So they kept the trade embargo active for more than five decades, costing the island country an estimated $130 billion in trade. Relations between the two countries might have remained tense for longer, but in 2008, a new U.S. president was elected, and he had a different idea for the future. No more Cold War diplomacy. I stand here today humbled by the task before us. So, in his second term, President Obama worked together with Cuba's new president, Fidel Castro's brother, Raul, to improve relations. By 2015, they were ready to reopen the abandoned American embassy in Havana, a huge step forward for both nations. One diplomat, who we'll call Jenny Smith, was one of the 25 new Americans who would be stationed in Havana, according to journalists Adam Entis and John Lee Anderson, who co-wrote a New Yorker article on the subject in November 2018. Smith and her family packed up their belongings and relocated to the island in June 2015. When Jenny arrived at the embassy for her first day of work, things may not have been what she expected. For starters, the building was falling apart. Shards of marble regularly fell from the walls, threatening to injure anyone who got too close. Perhaps Smith viewed the crumbling facade as an apt metaphor for eroded trust. But as she stepped through the embassy's glass doors, she was ready to help rebuild it. As a Foreign Service officer with the State Department, Smith was assigned an office on the ground floor because diplomats weren't the only officials in the embassy. Six stories above them were the headquarters of the newly re-established Havana branch of the CIA. Now, we talk about the CIA all the time on this show, but you might not be familiar with how they interact with the State Department. The mission of the State Department abroad is to represent the United States and foster positive relations with other nations. But to protect their identities, CIA officers are typically mixed in with the diplomats at embassy posts. Even diplomats themselves don't know which of their peers are undercover spies. Essentially, the State Department is a giant mask. As a State Department worker, Smith knew she might be surrounded by secret agents, but it's possible she hadn't lived in a country where that could put a target on her back. At the time, relations between the U.S. and Cuba remained tense. Cuban intelligence had a vested interest in weeding out CIA officers from the diplomats, and they weren't exactly subtle. Smith heard stories about Cuban entry teams breaking into the homes of suspected CIA operatives. They combed through everything for evidence of spying. Everything. Usually the Cuban agents left no trace, but sometimes they did. 
a cigarette butt in an ashtray, an unflushed toilet, little signs that delivered a big message. We're watching you. Still, Smith carried on as usual, just as she'd been trained to do. Cuban operatives might be brazen, but they didn't usually hurt American diplomats. A few months later, in March 2016, President Obama visited Cuba, the first American president to do so since 1928. Things seemed more positive than they had in decades. But then something unexpected happened. In November of 2016, Donald Trump won the U.S. presidency. Almost immediately, tensions ramped up again as Cuba and the international community held their breath to see what kind of president Trump would be. Some members of the Republican Party deeply mistrusted and even feared Cuba. They were also openly critical of President Obama's decision to lift the embargo in the first place. But with Trump, things could go either way. Maybe there was hope. Unfortunately, about two weeks later, things took another unexpected turn when Fidel Castro, the former president of Cuba, passed away. In response, President-elect Trump called Castro a dictator and threatened to roll back diplomatic relations upon taking office. Embassy employees were more stressed than ever facing uncertainty around their jobs. Then three weeks after the election, something else happened. Vertigo, headaches, vision problems, hearing loss, and strange noises resembling a swarm of locusts or a teapot on steroids. These are just some of the mysterious symptoms that started plaguing U.S. Embassy employees in Havana. And though nobody knew what was causing this, it didn't stop it from spreading. Coming up, the first documented cases of Havana Syndrome. Now back to the story. In December 2016, the United States government was in flux. The Obama administration was on its way out, and the Trump team was transitioning in. At the newly reopened U.S. Embassy in Havana, government employees were uncertain about their futures. That's because the new administration had threatened to end diplomatic relations with Cuba. That's approximately the time when it started. On December 30th, a U.S. Embassy employee in Havana checked into the health office with a strange complaint. He told the nurse he'd been home when he heard a loud, mechanical sound coming from outside. In an effort to drown it out, he closed all the windows and turned up his television. But the noise didn't stop. It seemed as though the noise stemmed from inside his head. Over the next few days, a strange pressure built up behind his eyes that gave way to painful headaches and dizzy spells. Before long, he couldn't sleep. His vision became blurry and he couldn't concentrate. After more than a week of suffering, he'd had enough. He booked another appointment at the embassy's health center. The nurse at the facility didn't know what to make of the man's symptoms. She'd never seen a patient like this before. 
But that changed in early February. Two additional embassy employees reported similar symptoms to the health office. Pressure filled their heads. In their homes, loud noises resembling a swarm of cicadas seemed to follow them from room to room. Yet when they opened the outside door, everything suddenly stopped. One of the victims likened the experience to standing in an invisible beam of energy. Now, with three cases of the mysterious ailment, embassy officials, particularly the higher-ups, worried because the three affected employees were undercover spies. After examining the patients, CIA and State Department doctors ruled out poisoning or illness. Instead, they concluded that many of the lingering symptoms, tinnitus, dizziness, and balance issues, suggested damage to the inner ear. The embassy didn't have the necessary instruments or equipment to do further testing, so they sent the patients to Miami. There, they'd undergo more testing under Dr. Michael Hoffer, a specialist. During the initial outbreak, officials tried to keep the mysterious affliction under wraps, but the embassy was a small place. People were already whispering. The rumors reached Jenny Smith, who likely assured herself she'd be fine. She was a diplomat, after all. On March 17th, 2017, Smith returned home from work as usual. According to journalists Adam Entis and John Lee Anderson, when her twins finally went upstairs to play Minecraft, she settled by the sink to wash the dishes. It was around 8 p.m., and the sun had just finished setting. The sky was a beautiful tint of blue and purple. Smith admired the view from her kitchen window until the lights inside made it hard to see the clouds. Out of nowhere, Smith felt a burst of pressure inside her skull. It was followed by a pain worse than any she'd ever felt, and it only got worse. Smith panicked. She tried to recall what her co-workers had shared about these attacks, their advice for protecting themselves. Luckily, she remembered, get off the X. In other words, move away from where it started. Smith stumbled into the living room. The pain stopped building, but it didn't go away. After taking a few moments to catch her breath, she checked on the twins. They hadn't seemed to notice anything. She went to her bedroom to rest and compose herself. In the following weeks, Smith continued to feel strange symptoms. Persistent headaches made it nearly impossible for her to sleep more than a few hours a night. She had trouble concentrating, and she couldn't focus her eyes when she read. She also often lost her balance. But Smith gritted her teeth and kept on. Later that month, the chief of mission held a meeting for the embassy staff. He updated people on what was happening with the CIA officers and asked that anyone experiencing unusual auditory or sensory symptoms come forward to be evaluated by the medical team. After the chief of mission's meeting, several employees came forward, but not Smith. She didn't want to be a burden. Meanwhile, others complained about a variety of symptoms, 
memory loss, hearing problems, vertigo, and brain fog. Some described hearing strange noises at the onset of symptoms. Others simply reported headaches, followed by disorientation. The medical staff tried to discern whether any of the new cases were related. They continued their investigation into the summer of 2017 and attributed many of the symptoms to unrelated issues and illnesses. At one point in the spring, they determined that at least 16 people were affected by what embassy staff were now calling the thing. Nearly half of those 16 were CIA agents. Government higher-ups had no idea what was happening. All they knew was this. It seemed only U.S. embassy workers and their families were being targeted. So their question became, by whom? The State Department and the CIA initially considered several foreign adversaries, most notably China and Russia. But in the end, some U.S. officials concluded Cuba was the most likely culprit. After all, the incidents were unfolding in Havana, and nothing happened in the city without Cuban intelligence knowing. Besides, there weren't any documented cases of Cuban civilians being affected. The chief of mission scheduled a meeting with the director general of Cuba's foreign ministry. He told her what was happening and demanded the harassment end. The director general was taken aback. She was very concerned by the allegations against her country and took them seriously. The message traveled up the Cuban chain of command. Within days, Cuban President Raul Castro met with the chief of mission privately and assured him that Cuba was not responsible. To uphold relations, Castro even offered up Cuban doctors and resources to help get to the bottom of things. But his efforts didn't matter. Republicans now controlled the U.S. government, and many conservatives in the Trump administration and Congress, particularly Florida Senator Marco Rubio, were distrusting. They were convinced Castro was lying, and that the Cubans knew more than they were letting on. As cases of the thing increased, so did a general sense of panic. The CIA believed they were under attack, and the diplomats caught in the crossfire. Amidst the chaos, the agency considered pulling out of Havana altogether, but this was complicated by their ties to the State Department, which was more reluctant to give up on Cuba. They believed the U.S. had no concrete proof that Cuba was behind the thing. Besides, if they pulled the diplomats off the island, well, that could be seen as a success for whoever was responsible. The State Department decided it wasn't going anywhere just yet. This meant the CIA was stuck. They couldn't pull their people out and leave the diplomats behind. That could potentially blow their cover. So they landed on Plan B. On May 23, 2017, the State Department secretly expelled two Cuban diplomats from the embassy in Washington. They made it clear to the Cuban government that every time an American fell victim to the thing in Havana, the Cubans would lose an embassy worker. Meanwhile, embassy leadership decided to bring Dr. Ear Nose and Throat Specialist from Miami to Cuba. He'd further study any patients who'd fallen victim to the thing and run his own tests. 
Around this time, Jenny Smith's symptoms worsened. By May of 2017, she'd been suffering for two months, and her husband decided he'd had enough. He insisted Smith make an appointment with Dr. Hoffer for her first official report of her symptoms. Smith reluctantly agreed and scheduled a visit to the health center. Dr. Hoffer wasted no time testing Smith for brain damage that could be causing her balance issues. He strapped a set of virtual reality goggles on her head and told her to follow the moving dot. Smith followed the target as it danced around and reappeared in different places. As she did, the goggles tracked her eye movement. When the simulation ended, Dr. Hoffer told her he didn't find anything wrong with her. Like Jenny, Dr. Hoffer was flummoxed. He'd been examining patients for nearly five months, and cases were still trickling in. And though the symptoms were real, nothing was physically wrong with them. In July 2017, Dr. Hoffer presented his findings to the State Department's top medical officials. The experts reviewed each case and were just as bewildered. The patients couldn't all be making it up. The panel recommended the victims be sent to a neurological expert to undergo even further specialized testing. Back in Washington, Trump administration officials had moved past speculation over who was orchestrating these attacks to how they were doing it, and their theory was terrifying. The first three cases featured victims who claimed to hear strange noises before being struck by other symptoms. This led officials to consider the possibility of a sonic attack. Perhaps some foreign adversary had developed a weapon that used sound waves to fry the brains of enemy agents. The idea that a foreign enemy could possess such a powerful device unnerved the new administration. But without any concrete proof, they'd need to tread carefully. If news broke about these suspected attacks, there would be political pressure to retaliate, and perhaps even a war. Coming up, the world finds out about Havana Syndrome. Now back to the story. In July of 2017, reporter Steve Dorsey received an anonymous tip. His source told him an unexplained affliction was affecting U.S. embassy workers in Havana, Cuba. Sensing a story, he pressed his sources for further information. On August 9th, Dorsey brought up the attacks during a State Department press briefing in Washington, D.C. The spokesperson was forced to confirm the claims, but was very careful not to use the word attacks. Instead, she said the department was investigating incidents among staff stationed in Cuba that caused a variety of physical symptoms. Despite the State Department's careful phrasing, Word quickly got out about the suspected nefarious nature of the so-called incidents. The Associated Press published a story featuring information gleaned from anonymous sources within the department. They claimed that the government suspected a covert sonic device was being used against the diplomats. Cuban officials issued a statement denying involvement, 
Furthermore, they expressed regret that their own diplomats had been expelled and restated their eagerness to work alongside the United States to get to the bottom of things. Press leaks aside, the United States government still hadn't officially confirmed that the mysterious events in Havana were the work of a hostile power. But two days later, on August 11th, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who was in charge of the State Department, went on television and called the incidents in Cuba health attacks. Many government officials were shocked by Tillerson's rhetoric, which had not been coordinated with any other departments. Now, it seemed the government had confirmed that American citizens were being targeted, and that set the tone for the events that would unfold. A few days after the statement, a high-ranking CIA officer arrived in Havana. We don't know why she was there, but her assignment seemed unrelated to the strange happenings in Cuba. From the airport, she went to the famous Hotel Nacional. Since the 1930s, the Hotel Nacional had been frequently visited by high-profile figures like Winston Churchill and Frank Sinatra. The hotel was known for its elegance and discretion. Not that that made a difference now. This particular trip was top secret. Nobody knew the true identity of their newest guest. The undercover officer was given a room on the eighth floor. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary, so she settled in for the night and went to sleep. Early in the morning, she suddenly woke to an enormous pressure in her head, and a low humming noise seemed to fill the room. She looked around for the source, but couldn't find anything. Later, a co-worker entered her room and couldn't hear the noise. Days later, back in the United States, the officer began experiencing issues with her vision and balance. Soon, it became impossible for her to read or drive a car. In such a debilitated state, it was difficult for her to continue working, so she was forced to let her supervisors know about what she experienced in Havana. Until then, the thing had only affected relatively low-level officers and diplomats. But according to New Yorker journalist Adam Entis, this new case involved a high-ranking member of the CIA. Past incidents had pretty much exclusively taken place at victims' homes in neighborhoods where diplomats were known to live. But this case had been different. No one but those in the very upper levels of the CIA had known this officer would be in Cuba. If someone really was singling out government employees with these attacks, how had they known that their newest target would be at the Hotel Nacional? There had been one other incident four months earlier, where a U.S. doctor working for the CIA visited Cuba unannounced. He'd stayed at the Capri Hotel, mere blocks from the Hotel Nacional, and experienced similar symptoms. At the time, the incident seemed like an outlier, but not anymore. The U.S. was ready to strike back. In September 2017, CIA Director Mike Pompeo moved to shut down the Havana Station branch. Secretary of State Tillerson quickly followed suit, overriding the wishes of many State Department officials and ordering home about half of the U.S. diplomatic staff. 
Several weeks later, the administration expelled 15 additional Cuban diplomats. Then, President Trump stated publicly that he believed the Cuban government was responsible for the attacks. This effectively ended former President Obama's reconciliation plan. Reactions from diplomats range from confusion to outrage. Many believe the withdrawal was an overreaction. Opponents of the Trump administration accused them of using the mysterious events as justification to torch yet another one of Obama's accomplishments. Jenny Smith wasn't there to witness the Havana embassy go through its massive downsizing. Along with several other victims of The Thing, she'd been flown to Philadelphia in August to undergo neurological testing. For three days, Smith was subjected to everything from MRIs to balance analysis. With every new experiment, she prayed they would find something, anything, to explain what she was going through. Once testing was done, neurologists picked through their data on Smith and at least 20 other victims with a fine-tooth comb. The process took months, dragging through the end of 2017. Smith tried to be patient as she waited for results, but the media was not willing to wait. Ever since the story of The Thing leaked, outlets had been speculating about what could cause concussion-like symptoms without physical signs of injury. Pundits and armchair experts discussed the possibility of energy pulses or sonic weapons, and a team of doctors and scientists declared microwave strikes could cause sonic delusions and trauma to the brain. It seemed like everybody had a conspiracy theory, which we'll get into in the next episode. But there was one problem. They'd yet to find evidence suggesting anything was wrong with the patients at all. In December of 2017, another story leaked, claiming that the neurologists had observed changes in the patient's brains, specifically in the white matter tracks that allowed different parts of the brain to communicate. Many victims, like Smith, must have been strangely excited by the news. This meant it wasn't all in their imagination. However, when the neurologists published their preliminary findings, in the Journal of the American Medical Association in February 2018, the real story appeared to be less conclusive than the leak suggested. Media claims of white matter tract changes in the brain weren't entirely accurate. However, the doctors did argue that the victims were suffering from a new kind of brain network disorder, consistent with damage seen after mild traumatic brain injuries. Many scientists took issue with the JAMA study. Critiques emerged from various experts debunking the study or pointing out flaws. The CDC also conducted its own review of the information. In 2019, they concluded that they had no explanation for the symptoms victims were experiencing. And so, over two years after the first documented case, the U.S. government and scientific community were no closer to answering who or what was responsible for the mysterious incidents in Havana. The lack of answers didn't stop the Trump administration from slashing an additional 60% of the embassy staff in early 2018. They also reclassified the Havana posting as a standard tour of duty, 
which is typically used to refer to the most dangerous embassies. With the scientific community at a loss and relations with Cuba effectively ruined, most began to move on, including Jenny Smith, who remained in the States and resumed full-time work in a different position. Still, her headaches continued to get worse, and she considered retiring early. But even as previous victims resumed their lives, it appears incidents of the thing continued to surface. After a new case emerged among Trump staffers visiting London, the U.S. reopened the case in the summer of 2020, and they made a shocking discovery. What began as isolated incidents affecting U.S. government employees in Cuba had expanded to more than 130 cases spanning multiple countries, from Colombia to Uzbekistan. Though a handful of cases involved intelligence officers from other countries, most of the victims were U.S. citizens, and all of them either worked for the government or were related to someone who did. Approximately 50 of the 130 or so cases were CIA officers. The phenomenon's resurgence raised new questions and concerns, with cases popping up all over the globe, some of them involving countries like Canada that were friendly with Cuba. It seemed likely that a bigger player on the world stage was responsible. Several incidents, including the one involving the military official and his two-year-old son, point to another culprit. A superpower that consistently influences other countries through the use of secretive attacks and advanced technologies. Russia. And that's part of what we'll discuss next time when we investigate three conspiracy theories about the origin of Havana Syndrome. Theory number one is that a foreign power, possibly Cuba, used sonic weapons to attack U.S. intelligence agents. Theory number two is that an enemy power, likely the Russians, used powerful microwave-emitting tools to activate covert listening devices, incidentally causing harm to nearby intelligence officers. And finally, theory number three posits that targets of Havana syndrome were actually suffering from mass psychogenic illness. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on Havana Syndrome, amongst the many sources we used, we found the article, The Mystery of the Havana Syndrome, written by Adam Entis and John Lee Anderson and published in The New Yorker on November 9th, 2018 to be extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. 
This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Danny Messerschmidt, edited by Wendelin Sabroso and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Bradley Klein, recorded by Freddie Rivera, produced by Bruce Kotovich, and sound designed by Juan Borda. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. <laughs>